It remains for me to introduce Sarah Willosen, who is the uh, director of the Open Documentary Laboratory at CMS. And the Open Doc Lab is, a, uh, is our most recent and in many ways uh, one of our most interesting uh, initiatives at MIT. Uh, Sarah and William Uricchio are the uh, geniuses behind it, and Sarah will say a few more things about that as well as introducing her speakers. So this represents the first collaboration between the forum and Sarah's lab, and I hope it will be one of many. Sarah. Thank you, David. Um, just to say a little bit more about the Open Documentary Lab for anyone who doesn't know about it, we're, we are a new initiative, and we're really looking at new forms of storytelling and uh, participatory storytelling and interactive and locative, and really trying to create an infrastructure for these um, forms to thrive, and um, both with scholarship and with events and with collaboration. So it's an, a new initiative, and we're... we're moving forward with it. And it's, I'm very pleased to have this forum tonight because I think this is a really important topic is um, this convergence of documentary and multimedia and online news. It's been happening for about 10 years, but what's really interesting is what these two are doing, um, which is really um, pushing the boundaries of documentary and interactivity in this world. Um, and I think it's important first to distinguish between documentary and journalism. Um, and uh, in the words of Jerry Flahive, who's from the National Film Board of Canada and a wonderful uh, documentary maker, he said, um, news needs a hook and documentary creates one. Um, and I think that's a great way to think about it and very much what these two are doing. Um, tonight we'll also look at sort of how these two worlds come together, the challenges, the possibilities for creation, for distribution, for audiences, for audience engagement. Um, we'll look at some multimedia and interactive projects and how they're really changing the newsroom. And um, finally, we'll consider the role of participatory video and social media online. So um, let me introduce our two speakers. We have Jason Spingarnkoff, um, who's the series producer and curator of OpDocs, which is a new initiative at the New York Times um, for short, opinionated documentaries. It's really wonderful um, if you haven't seen it. And it's by independent filmmakers and artists and highly creative. Um, he directed the feature documentary um, Life 2.0 about the, um, what's it called? The Second so, Life. Thank you. I blocked on that, on Second Life. And it's also, I was, I was struck by that. That was really interesting because mm. you also at that time used Second Life people to help you make the film and build sets. So very innovative. Um, it was acquired by OWN, Oprah Winfrey's Network Documentary Club, and his work has also appeared on um, PBS, BBC, and he was a Knight Science Fellow here in 2010 and 11. Um, Alexandra Garcia is a multimedia journalist um, for the Washington Post. Um, she's been awarded an Edward Murrow Award, eight regional Emmy Awards, and named 2011 Video Editor of the Year by the White House News Photographers Association. Um, and she's really been one of the early um, people to really uh, create and work in this, in this world of documentary and news. Um, and she's now currently a fellow at the um, Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University. And with that, I'll let Jason take it from here. Okay, great. Thank you so much for having me here. And it's fun to be on this panel with Alex and to be back at MIT, which 
is a place I really love, and I, I had such a wonderful uh, year here as a Knight Fellow. Um, it's the 30th anniversary of the Knight Program this weekend, so um, there's a great history here of supporting journalism. So I'm mainly going to talk about OpDocs, at least to start, and I guess we'll then go into some other uh, subjects. But um, after working as a filmmaker for around 10 years, I then did the Knight Fellowship, and then I was hired by the New York Times to be the first video journalist for the opinion section. So what I've been working on is figuring out, um, especially with op-ed, what's the video equivalent of the op-ed page? And what should we be doing with op-ed columnists as well as contributors? And the op-ed page has been around for around 41, 42 years, and it's become a very influential home for writing uh, from the public. It's the voice of the public uh, within the New York Times. And um, what we're doing with OpDocs is trying to create a similar forum for filmmakers to express themselves in the same way that writers express themselves on the op-ed page. And since we launched it in 2011, we've had, I, I think, 54 pieces that we've published. We're publishing around one a week. And um, basically, have people see, has anyone not seen an op doc before? Is anyone totally new to this? So everyone's seen them? Yeah, you haven't? Okay. People have kind of seen them. Oh, okay, well, that's great. That's really great, because um, the term didn't even exist a year and a half ago. And um, essentially, they're, they're short documentaries that, I think of as filmmaking, which is a little bit different than news. Typically, uh, what we do in the newsroom is, I think, more video journalism. There's a spectrum between video journalism and kind of filmmaking. But this is um, a pretty eclectic forum for um, creative work by independent filmmakers. I'm going to show a few pieces, and then we can talk more. But... I want to first give you a sense of the stylistic range. And these are just three clips. It's very hard for me to pick which ones to show because I'm kind of attached to all of them. I'm usually most excited about the most recent one. <laughs> so I'm also going to show you the most recent one. Um, okay, so let's see here. Hopefully this is queued up. This is just three little excerpts of older work. December 1967, John Updike was writing Talk of the Town for the New Yorker, and he spent most of that Talk of the Town column talking about the Umbrella Man. He said that his learning of the existence of the Umbrella Man made him speculate that in historical research, there may be a dimension similar to the quantum dimension in physical reality. 
if you put any event under a microscope, you will find a whole dimension of completely weird, incredible things going on. It's as if there's the macro level of historical research where things sort of obey natural laws and usual things happen and unusual things don't happen. And then there's this other level where everything is really weird. When I was young, I used to debate a lot with my parents. So they always told me you should be a lawyer. I used to play around and watch a lot of stuff, like Law and Order. I, used to, I loved that show. That's why I was so confused in the first time it happened. I thought you had to do something for them to really stop you. But after that, I seen that you didn't have to do nothing to get stopped. Most of the times when I get stopped, I'm walking down the block. They never say, this is why I'm stopping you. When you're young and you're black, no matter how you look, you fit the description. So that, that's a bit of a range of storytelling approaches. There's the classic Errol Morris interview-driven piece. There's the kind of classic social issue piece. And then this piece, you really need to see the whole thing. It's five minutes long, but there's not any exposition. There's nothing spoken. There's no text. There are no moving images. And... What I find exciting is that these three very different approaches can all elicit very strong uh, discussions around the pieces. And a a lot of our mission is to spark public dialogue around issues. So people can use such different techniques to spark dialogue. And um, I want to show you next our, our new one, which is from today. Did anyone see this one from today? Drones? Okay. Great. 
This is a fun one. Did anyone see Nutria? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. It's by the Nutria guy. Drew Christie. He's done um, four, I think, for us. Okay. Oh, sorry. I'm not used to the dual screen thing. Let's get that on the other monitor. Okay, take two. I am very disappointed in your American city of Seattle. The police department there had gotten approval from FAA to fly unamended aerial vehicles, otherwise known as drones. As a former KGB agent, I was so proud of them. But on February 7th, Seattle's mayor crushed the drone program with his iron fist. Now, the legislators in 11 states are looking into restricting drones' use of their skies. But do not despair. A recently uncovered confidential Justice Department memo concludes that U.S. government can use drones to kill American citizens on foreign soil if they are believed to be terrorists. That's more like it! I always thought that the part in the Fifth Amendment about not being deprived of life and liberty without due process of law was so restrictive. Like a wool sweater that is two sizes too small, especially now at the age of missile shooting, flying robots, we would have killed for these things, literally. It looks like your Fourth Amendment won't be getting in the way either. In the 1986, your Supreme Court ruled that warrantless aerial observation did not violate the Fourth Amendment protection from unreasonable search and seizure. Therefore, any information collection from the drones could be used to incriminate persons. Domestic drones will be daily visual reminder that American citizens now live in a militarized surveillance state. The Air Force, the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, the Army, the Navy, and DARPA have all applied for FAA certificates for flying drones over U.S. soil. Within next decade, the sky might become so filled with drones, the sun could be blocked out in high-use areas and thus reduce the risk of skin cancer. People might have to start carrying special umbrellas to deflect failing drones that have malfunctioned, which would be great for umbrella business economic development courtesy of flying robot friends. This is such an exciting time for people who have always wanted to live in utopian societies of 1984 or Brave New World. We no longer have to look to science fiction for our dream surveillance state. It's nearly here! Thank you, America! You are finally ready to discard your antiquated documents 
and embrace your future. Bezdorov. <laughs> So brilliant. Um, but this is a big news story. It was on the front page of the Times, I believe, on Saturday. So it's so interesting that a documentary or a nonfiction filmmaker like Drew Christie has been going after the same story as traditional news reporters, but in such a different way. And he was working on this for a few weeks, and it was kind of amazing as domestic drones became a news story. Yeah. So he was, I think in many ways, he's like working as a reporter. Yeah. <laughs> so the heart of these are short films, but I want to just give you a sense of how they're presented because this is very much a new media and cross-platform project. So we have this gallery page. So if you go to nytimes.com slash opdocs, you can find all, you know, 54 of the pieces. And they're hosted in perpetuity as part of the Permanent Times archive. And then you can watch each of them in this gallery. But when we publish them, this is today's front page. You can see on the top right, we're promoting the drones piece. And... This is how we intend people to discover the work. We also recently have gotten lucky a few times where the, the paper has put the opdoc in the top photo spot. So you could play the film right there at the top. This was a film that we ran as part of a Sundance series last month. It's a really strong piece. And each opdoc comes with an article that's written by the filmmaker. So we think very much it's a pairing of a film and a piece of writing. And then the commenting is also very important. These are, I believe, the only videos at the Times that regularly have comments. Um, from the beginning, we decided that was an essential element because we want to have public dialogue just like we do with print op-eds. Sometimes we also pair the videos with print stories. And uh, Laura Poitras has done two opdocs. And for each of them, we commissioned uh, print op-eds from, from authors to do interesting pairings with the opdocs. So you can see here in the paper, we teased the, the video. So we're using the, the newspaper, video, online text, commenting. Social media is a very important part of this. We tweet on our main account. We have 7 million uh, Twitter followers, so that really helps with the global reach. And then we have a YouTube channel, which also helps expand the audience. And we have... Uh, th this, this was a... Did anyone see the Gregory Brothers election pieces? Yeah, we, we did a four-part series of these musical mashup videos during the campaign season, and they're really funny. I, re I recommend looking at them. But those 
have a very large online audience, and um, some of them got more than three million views on YouTube alone, which was kind of amazing. And we also have a Hulu channel, which I love, because you can watch them in perfect resolution. You can also watch them on your television if you have a a Hulu-enabled device. You can watch them on the New York Times iPad and iPhone, but you can also watch them on Hulu Plus, like iPad or iPhone. So there's a sense that even though we're not, we don't have a television station, but we're delivering these short films in the same way that broadcasters are. So I had a revelation that we are not really producing web video. I think we're producing these really strong short films that exist in this online ecosystem, but it's much more than a web video. And we've also started playing them in movie theaters. We have a uh, relationship with the IFC Center in New York, and last summer we did a 12-week run where before every feature film we played an op-doc, and we're going to do that again this winter. So we're exploring different ways of reaching audiences. And I could show, I could show one more if there's time. Yeah. Yeah? yeah? Okay, I'll show one more. This was last week's. Did anyone see this one? Have, have people seen Casey Neistat's work before? He's, he's one of our regular contributors. He's an interesting example of someone who puts himself in all his pieces and shoots and edits, and he's kind of a one-man operation, a little like, like Alex here. Um, okay. This is also MIT relevant in that It's a bit of a science experiment. In New York City, most chain restaurants are required to post calorie information on their menus. Yeah, the barbacoa burrito. And soon, because of Obamacare, all restaurants with more than 20 locations will be required to post calorie counts. It's like how the FDA requires labels on packaged foods. The idea is pretty basic. When you know how much you're eating, you tend to eat less. Now... Section 8150 of the New York City Health Code states, The Health Department will cite violations if you fail to post calorie information. But the Health Department doesn't verify the accuracy of that information. They told me no one checks to make sure these numbers are correct. So I thought I'd assume that responsibility. The actual process for testing caloric content is incredibly complicated and horribly boring. It involved two food scientists who were totally patient and answered all of my stupid questions. And it's pronounced calorimeter? Calorimeter. Okay, got it. We needed the resources at the Obesity Research Lab at St. Luke's Hospital. It involved precision beyond anything I'm capable of. 
and a lot of math. It took us 10 hours to test five items. How much do you stand but how much do you stand behind today's results? 100%. Now, there was very little science put into the selection of food to be tested. I just tried to pick all the foods that I might eat in a single day. Some from restaurants, some packaged. These muffins are everywhere in the city, but the nutritional information is impossible to find. They're called yogurt muffins, and the guy at the bodega said, They're low fat, everyone. Low fat? Yeah, low fat. This one, time, they all yogurt muffins. They're pretty healthy. Yeah, they're the best. The best. All right, thank you. There's no nutritional information on their website, so I called them, and they faxed me the data. According to them, the muffin had an incredible 640 calories. And it was even more incredible to find out there were actually 734.7 calories. That's more calories than two McDonald's Egg McMuffins. Thoughts on the results from the nutty banana? No, I suspected that it was going to be over. Next up, the Frappuccino. A grande with whipped cream is supposed to have 370 calories. The actual count was 392.9. I can forgive that. The girls at Starbucks like me. Here you go. They probably just gave me an extra squirt. I used Chipotle's online calorie calculator to add up all the ingredients in my burrito. It came to a whopping 1,175 calories. Not a huge surprise, this thing's as big as my foot. Actual count was just over 10% more, which is an understandable margin, but nonetheless a lot of unaccounted for calories. A favorite snack of mine are these vegetarian sandwiches. They taste okay and are vegan, kosher, and according to the label, only have 228 calories. Plus, in big, bold, italic red letters, it says healthy. And this healthy sandwich took the trophy for the biggest inaccuracy. Actual calorie content was nearly double what the label said, giving this sandwich about the same amount of calories as a Big Mac. Not cool. And lastly, Subway. I just didn't believe that a sandwich this big could only have 360 calories. But I guess that guy Jared knows what he's talking about. The only item tested to come in under the declared amount was Subway. Now, this isn't a conclusive study, I didn't test multiple samples. But I did find that on this day, if I had based my diet on the calorie counts provided to me, because of the discrepancies in those counts, I would have consumed an extra 548 calories. So today's 548 calorie discrepancy means I unknowingly ate a McDonald's quarter pounder with cheese, or two hamburgers worth of calories, or two Snickers or a couple of donuts. Which all begs the question, if the requirement to post the information is going to be enforced, why not also enforce its accuracy? Bye again, thanks for your help. Bye, thanks for having me. Bye. Right, thank you. Oh, that? <laughs> Can I borrow your audio yep. cable?
Oh, that's my screen with my notes. Yay. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, and I'm mostly excited because I've been working online um, as an online journalist for eight years. And I always felt like this was happening in a vacuum. And I didn't realize people were talking about it outside the news industry. And it feels good. <laughs> um, so I started my career at the Washington Post in 2005 as a photo editor on the website. Um, so I was picking photos for the homepage. And I noticed this group of really cool people. There were like five of them back in the back of the Post newsroom. They played a lot of ping pong. And they were also always going out on assignment. Um, and I was like, I want to do that. Because what they were doing was um, video journalism. They were taking stories that were in the newspaper and they were bringing the characters alive through video. And they were very particular about what they were called. And I know we're going to talk about language in a little bit, but um, they made it very clear that what they were doing, video journalism, came out of the tradition of documentary photography and reportage and didn't come out of a broadcast television background. So they weren't reporters on screen. They didn't do stand-ups. They were serious. We are video journalists. So <laughs> that's what I wanted to be. Um, and the videos were fabulous. They started doing video on the Post website in 1999, which seemed crazy to me. The videos were about this big. They were like little thumbnails. And... Um, but they got bigger, and as they got bigger, they got better. Um, and one of our producers, Travis Fox, in 2006, he won an Emmy Award, the first Emmy Award for a um, online journalist. So I'm going to take you, this is like the Wayback Machine, um, a little bit through kind of how I discovered what this career was and, uh, and maybe where it's going. Um, so the first real big video assignment I got was to do a story to accompany a Post magazine story about a free health clinic in southwest Virginia um, that provided free medical care to people who were uninsured and underinsured. Um, and I really was excited to take advantage of the one-man band style of video journalism, um, you know, where it was just me and a camera and a subject. And I felt like... I could get a lot more intimate interviews than I might have been able to with a traditional television crew. So I'm going to show about two minutes of this one. Every year, hundreds of doctors, dentists, and volunteers come to Wise County, Virginia to provide free medical care to those who can't afford it. Where does the money come from to be able to afford to buy insurance? I mean, we're, we're, we're having problems eating. People call up all the time, patients, and they say, what do I have to bring with me in order to get care? I say, all you have to do is show up, but you better show up early. Okay, morning, folks. Good morning. 
Now, what I'm going to do, of course, is start calling out number one. I came up with the name Remote Area Medical because Remote Area Medical was what uh, we were planning to do. An airborne operation that has capability to parachute into some of these out-of-the-way places. But now 60% of all the work we do is right here in America. Hundreds of volunteers have transformed the county fairgrounds into a field hospital, providing medical, vision, and dental care to more than 20. Um, so, the thing that was actually, I think we saw enough of that one, um, the most interesting about that project for me, so this was, this was what a multimedia project looked like in 2008 when we launched it, had a photo gallery article, um, two videos, but the most interesting part to me and where I started to realize the potential of online journalism at a newspaper was the discussion that we had. We had an, a live Q&A with two of the organizers from Remote Area Medical, along with a print reporter from the Post magazine. And watching people talk about a story that I had worked on and having dozens and dozens of people write in to volunteer for this clinic um, started getting me excited about how much reach this online journalism had and also the ability for people to communicate directly with the reporter and with the organizers of this clinic um, was really exciting <coughs> for me. Um, in 2009, um, I launched an online video series. Um, what had happened at the Post was that people had started to realize that video online had a lot of potential. Video advertising was really valuable. But as the newspaper hired more and more video journalists and produced more and more video, it wasn't gaining much traction. But we'd had some experiments with doing series, so where the same video project would appear once a week. Um, and it, it gained traction. It built an audience. And so we were tasked to come up with a series. So my series, <laughs> I was obsessed with street-style blogs in D.C., I know. D.C., fashion, I know, it's a little crazy. But also, I grew up in D.C., and it was my home, and I was kind of sick of it being portrayed as a place that was only politics and pantsuits. Um, and so I wanted to do a neighborhood-based project that showed the intersection of neighborhood style and personal style and neighborhood culture. Um, and so I launched this series in 2009, and I'll play a couple excerpts from it. Hopefully. Swagger's your bop, how you, how, you, how you move in life. You know, you get looks, but it's like, I like that, not, what's she wearing? It's funny, I'll go and shop in a, in a woman's store to, to find stuff that will make me happy. This is like from a thrift store at like the beach. This is from a thrift store in San Francisco. Like the gems are always like hidden away. You have to be dedicated to like scouring through the racks. People are like, oh my god, your arms are so toned. Literally, it's from like going through the racks. 
if I had to walk down the street in a dress like this and I was complimented by a man? Probably because of my body. But for a woman, that means there's some kind of elegance to it. You know, of course, I got to take it back to Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So, you know, call him, you know, doing that move. And um, the jury's made by me. Two people, go, we can wear the same thing, but I might look different from you because of my energy. You might look different from me based on who you are. So style is really your, what they say now, swagger, you know. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? What's up? What's up, sir? Some people move with confidence, so you move in confidence, you get and you got swagger. I'm wearing a pink dress with flowers all around it because it's Easter. So glad I'm here. So glad People still put on their Sunday best. I love to dress. This is where I was brought up. I was born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, so in the Southern tradition, we have the Easter bonnet with the frills upon it. I never come to church without a hat. I have a closet, all different color hat boxes. Maybe 50. Yeah, it's 50, I know. <laughs> I love hats. All kinds and all shapes. My husband always said, don't bring any more hats in here, but he knows me. <laughs> Just show a little bit. When I go visit my friends at other schools, you know, you can wear sweatpants and hoodies and sneakers to class. Never. So um, there were 16 episodes in all for that series. Um, and what was exciting is I was using a camera that was relatively new at the time. This was in 2009, and I was using a camera that could shoot stills for the newspaper um, and shoot video for the website. So the stills were published to promote the, the series in the paper. But the most exciting thing to me was the participation. Um, so we had a big call out on the web page that for comments and for people to suggest where I should go next on this journey to explore my city as like a tourist in my own city. And so, like, Howard Homecoming was a suggestion from a, read, from a reader, reader, viewer. And, um, and it really helped shape the project. So I was kind of letting the audience lead me along, which was really cool. Um, oh, interesting. So in, uh, in 2011, um, The Post was doing a six-month series about Muslims in America. And I was really interested in the idea of perception. Um, you know, 10 years after 9-11, how did Muslims feel perceived and how did people view them? And so my colleague and I put out a call out on the religion blog on the Post website. And 
that call-out kind of helped shape our storytelling. Because the most interesting thing that we found from the people who wrote in was the questions that they had for the other group. Um, and so we launched a video mosaic, is what we called it, um, on the Post website to have people ask questions of each other. Um, so this is a little trailer from that, and then I'll show you how the interactivity works. Why did you come here? Is it to add to our culture? I came to America to enjoy its freedom and to have an experience in, the, in a very special nation. It has become normal to fear Muslims. A lot of Muslim people get judged before someone meets them because a lot of people think, you know, the Quran's all about violence and and it's really not. Do you want to be an American, be accepted, and have everybody know exactly how you feel? I'm just, I'm an outcast, basically. He said the threat level today is as high as it has been since September 11th because of increased radicalization in our country. Well, how come we haven't heard anything from the large number of peaceful, patriotic American Muslims? The arguments against Muslims has evolved all the time. It morphs into something. You fight one, then it morphs into something else. If ten Christians go out today and commit an act of terror, would you like to be blamed for those ten people? Do you condemn radical Islam? There needs to be a boogeyman divert the attention of the people from real issues. So online, what we had was this video mosaic where users could kind of create their own experience by filtering the interviews by gender, religion, age, job, and also by theme, which was really interesting. Um, they could kind of make a dialogue for themselves. So what we tried to do was have, when we were shooting, have all the non-Muslims facing this way and all the Muslims facing this way. So they were kind of having a virtual conversation with each other, um, which was really exciting. I think I'm going to run short on time, so I don't know how much more to show. But I'll show a little bit of this one. A little bit. Maybe a few minutes. You're fine. Five minutes. Five minutes, no problem. Um, as part of that um, series, we actually started expanding a little bit into a little bit of longer form videos on the on the Post website. For a while, you know, I think all newspaper websites and a lot of people online have had these like rules that nobody knows where they come from. Like, videos have to be under two minutes, or nobody's going to watch them. For example, um, but we started experimenting a little bit more with. Um, with longer form stuff on our website, and it was pretty successful. Um, as part of the Muslims in America series, um, my colleague and I wanted to explore a little bit more um, the secular Muslim community, and so we followed a group of Muslims, Muslim comedians um, as they toured the South, which was an exciting story. So I'll just show you a little bit of this one, um, the first minute, but it's about 11 minutes long. for me. You know what I'm scared of? I'm scared to go to the airport. And this is why. So when I walk in, security sees an Arab. But as I mentioned, I have cerebral palsy. So I'm a shaking Arab. 
So when they look in the camera, they're like, that bitch is nervous. <laughs> proud Muslims, proud Muslims. Yes, give it up for Islam, baby. So that's what I'm doing for the Middle Eastern conflict. The question is, what the f- are you guys doing? Italian guys, they'd be sitting over a dead body holding a smoking gun. They're like, officer, I don't know, I think he shot himself in the back four or five freaking times. Al-Qaeda claims responsibility for things they could have never done. They call up, okay, do you know the eclipse? <laughs> we do the Muslims are coming comedy tour slash documentary. We're coming right now to Southern Lake. Next up, Birmingham, Alabama, my friend. We're trying to use our comedy as a way of reaching out to people. And kind of showing them the other face of, of Islam. No mosque, not here. Not now. To me, in the last two years, I saw the growth of Islamophobia. And then the Ground Zero Mosque with the Lower Manhattan Community Center, I think, sparked a whole other wave of anti-Muslim rhetoric. So that was that piece. And it's really interesting because at the beginning of this piece, we didn't have um, this tie to the news, to the political situation in there. And the number of times my editors come to me and say, this is a newspaper. You have to tie it to the news. is pretty incredible. So, But I think it made the piece better in the end. Um, and then just a little bit about some of the pitfalls that I think can happen with this kind of, a jur- of journalism. Um, I kind of look like a circus act when I'm out shooting as this one-man band. Um, I have like a tripod, an audio recorder, a camera, two cameras sometimes, um, a pouch with some lenses, some microphones, I'm thinking of my questions while I'm setting up. I'm asking my questions while I'm talking to the person, trying to maintain eye contact, and is my audio recorder on? And, oh, my God, my shot's out of focus, and I need to change the battery, and it's a little in- intense. This is, just, this is just a little funny thing. So this is a, a video that my colleague Anna shot as um, the rapper T.I. was coming up to her as she was um, shooting at a movie premiere, and this kind of sums it up for me. Pleasure, pleasure. Good day, huh? So you direct, you journalist, cameraman, everything. Producer, I love it. It's like a low-budget movie shoot. I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. Like it a, is an incredibly hard job. Like a low-budget movie yeah. shoot. <laughs> and the other thing that can happen is as I'm asked to shoot stills for the newspaper and video for the website more, there's a real tension between what to shoot when, and I think the quality for both often suffers if you're shooting both. I was shooting this story about a family that the, there were six little girls, and they were living in Mexico, but they were crossing the border every day to go to school in Texas. And I knew I was going to have one border crossing. So I called up the photo editor, and I was like, so should I shoot this in stills? Of course. I call up the video editor. So should I shoot this in video? Of course. And it kind of leaves you in this really uncomfortable situation. And the quality suffers. So this was what ended up happening. I ended up shooting the family coming in on video so I could get the audio of them talking to the guy. I switched to the camera mode for a minute. I shot like three frames. And then I shot back. And of course, this is the image that they wanted to use on A1. And it wasn't good enough. Um, I think, you know, she her eyes are closed. The other girl looks like she's eating the other girl's head. Um, <laughs> And I think that's, that's something that's really happening these days. I do think that the quality of a lot of the journalism is suffering because of this kind of working. Um, today, though, we're doing a lot more 
involved uh, multimedia projects. This is a project that we produced after Obama won re-election at the Post, um, which is a timeline um, with video and photo content. We've launched a Google TV app, um, which runs a daily news program called The Fold on the Post uh, Google TV. And so I'm just kind of wondering if we're coming full circle now. Um, it's so funny. I, I read a, there was an article in, I think it was published in 2010 in the Columbia Journalism Review, um, where they were talking about, oh, video journalism was going to save newspapers and it hasn't happened yet. And a commenter, somebody reading that article wrote on there, if you folks aren't careful, you're going to in create television. And I just think it's really interesting because a lot of what newspapers are doing now are a lot more daily shows. Um, so I think it's interesting. Some of the things that are currently inspiring me are outside of the news space, like um, interactive documentaries, like this Hollow interactive documentary, which is a community, community participatory project. Elaine McMillian is back there. She's the um, director of that. And it's really interesting. It's allowing the community to document their own community. Um, and I think there are a lot of really interesting um, examples of, of interesting stuff going on that's kind of blending documentary and news. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a really good point that there's this convergence of all these different fields, you know, disciplines working in it from photographers to documentarians to journalists. Um, let me ask you a question. What, is the, what are the challenges of working with filmmakers and artists in, in a news context? What, how does that work? Well, we, we have at the times maybe 30 people on staff doing video and they're all considered journalists so they kind of pass a certain standard and understand I think the, the best practices of journalism so when you go out and do a story you have total confidence that you're going to deliver something that will will pass I mean that's the idea at least <laughs> um, so I'm because I'm working with with filmmakers, most of them don't consider themselves journalists. So, like the Drew Christie piece about drones, I mean, he wouldn't consider himself a... Well, I don't think he would consider himself a journalist. <laughs> so I guess the part of the challenge is um, within the Times to take this type of opinion journalism and apply the same rigor that we would for any other piece of journalism. And there isn't any contradiction between journalism and opinion, there's just a certain set of things we have to do to make sure that it's, you know, fact-checked and transparent. And we do have, as part of the OpDocs team, we have someone who just does fact-checking. And that's such an essential part. And, and it always makes the work better. Like the, the drones piece, in the process of fact-checking, I think Drew found out that Seattle, the Seattle Police Department had just overturned this um, provision to allow drones. So the lead of the whole piece changed, and it, it made the piece better. So I think that filmmakers shouldn't be afraid of fact-checking. It, it always makes the work better. Um, I think that, so that's often one of the big challenges we have. And how about for you, for working in a, with a visual medium and an artistic one in a journalistic context? What are the... What are the challenges? Yeah. What's been the experience of that? How has it been received? Um, 
I think it's been received well. One thing that's really hard is that people have this idea of what a newspaper is, you know, and when I show up and I say, hi, I'm with the Washington Post, can I interview you? People are like, great, and then they're like, what's that microphone? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's in people's expectations, but also it's in people's expectations of what they're going to get when they come to the Post website. Um, I don't think people still, even though we started doing video in 1999, I don't think if they think there is something that I really want to learn about, I don't think in video, I don't think their first stop is necessarily to go to a newspaper website. I hope we're changing that. But, um, but that's, that's kind of been a struggle, just kind of shifting people's impressions of what a newspaper is and can do. And did you have any problems within, with the editors or within the post to sort of change that? Because you were really one of the pioneers doing it. Um, it's, been, it's been interesting. I mean, the post used to be, the website and the newspaper were in two separate buildings, were actually divided by a river. So I worked in Arlington, Virginia for WashingtonPost.com, and then there was the Washington Post at 15th and L. Um, and that was hard, but it was also really exciting because we could kind of do whatever we wanted over here. And pe- people didn't pay that much attention to us. And now that we've merged, um, there's a lot more, well, certainly oversight is good. Mm-hmm. But I think also there are a lot more editors you have to go through if you want to try something new. And everybody knows about sort of the financial challenges that are happening right now in newspaper journalism, so I think there's a, a little a little bit less um, of, a, of a desire to really take risks and innovate, and I think that's, that's been tough to kind of navigate mm-hmm. how to do that, because, you know, video was supposed to save newspapers, and so we're supposed to make money, right? So that's been a little tough. And what about, um, would you say there's a shift from thinking about multimedia to thinking about interactivity and really thinking how you're going to engage the audience in this? And could you talk about that? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. I think we used to have a multimedia team. Mm-hmm. And primarily what that team did was take photographs that were being shot for the newspaper of the Washington Post and pair them with audio, audio interviews. And so we had a lot of photo slideshows. We don't really do that anymore, but that was our multimedia team. But Everything we do now is multimedia. I mean, I think it's a little silly that my, the title I gave you is multimedia journalist, because what does that mean? Everybody, you know, any video is multimedia. It's images and audio. But also, um, it's just so much more than that. It's really about, it is about interactivity. And we've had, you know, I think with the Muslims in America piece, we're, we're trying to engage the audience more, not just in the comment section, building a dialogue that way, but have them decide what kind of viewing experience they want to have. Yeah, I think that, well, we also no longer have a multimedia um, department. Instead, we have multimedia, well, we have an interactive graphics department, and we have people who are, like, programmers and journalists. It's like a pretty amazing skill set and we have designers who are also skilled with video and these teams can come together as needed and we're right now with OpDocs we're doing the first interactive documentary um, where I guess 
we haven't really announced it, but it's going to be a three-part three film plus an interactive version. So there's a very rich experience on a tablet that we're going to be building out. And um, I don't think there's any, like, one future. I think it's a mistake to look at, like, interactive is the future. Because it's, it's all different types of stories. What's the best way to tell a story? Sometimes the best way is in a three-minute video, a linear classic video, and it's more about working within that form to get people's attention or to break through on a subject. Other times it's a very complex issue where you, you really want layers of, of information and you know sifting through different storylines. Should, mm-hmm. should we talk about the big elephant in the room? Yeah, sure. Um, neither one of us worked on Snowfall, but... We both wanted to talk about Snowfall. Um, ha- has anyone here seen Snowfall? Yeah. Um, I think that this points the way towards a really satisfying user experience and a new type of reading. Do you want to bring it up? Actually, um, I'm not hooked up. Oh. I, Are you hooked up or I can yeah. bring it up? Um, it's been heralded as this new form of, you know, this entirely new level of multimedia yeah. and um, newspaper oh, mm. journalism. Can we switch back to my computer? Yours isn't up either. Thank you. This was, so I had nothing to do with this project except working at the same company. I wish I had worked on this. I really love it. And... Basically, there's this very long reported print piece, which in fact was printed in the paper as its own section, which was, I've never seen that before. But I think the best experience is this online experience where you're reading the story, and as you're reading it, these visual elements come up. Some of them are are videos like this. Um, It's about an avalanche which took the lives of three skiers. And I think the avalanche was a year ago. Mm-hmm. Was it last February? About a year ago. So it's just this wonderful integration of text and image and information. And the team, from what I've read, from how they've discussed it, worked a lot on creating this type of reading experience. And a lot of a lot of what I love is how simple it is. It's just so simple. Like, yeah, and I also think what's interesting about it, which they've talked about, is that it really changed the process in the newsroom because the newsroom has traditionally been very siloed and you have the photo- photography department and the written and they're doing these pieces, but they're not um, talking from the beginning and they're just slapping it together. And from what I understand, this was a, a real... Um, collaboration between all these different departments from the beginning. Yeah. We, yeah. The, the piece I'm working on now with OpDocs is with some of the same people who worked on Snowfall. And the organization is large enough that there are these specialists who can come in. So depending on what you're working on, you can bring in someone from Interactive Graphics and bring in a, you know, a programmer and bring in these other specialists who can do this type of work. And so I feel very lucky to have those people. I, I agree. I mean, I think for me, we've, we've been 
embedding things in article templates at the Post since like 2006 or even before that. But the thing about this that is so exciting to me is that you don't really have to click on anything. It doesn't, it's not distracting you. You're just reading along. And so I think that the, the real success in this piece is really in the editing um, you know, and, and in bringing together all of the teams and kind of treating them all equally. You know, not that the text is king and every, all the other multimedia is kind of pushed off to the side, which often happens, I think, at, on, at newspapers. Um, but here it's really integrated, and I think it's, it's really exciting. Can you show, I think it's um, Descent Begins. There's this incredible part where as you're reading, it shows you the illustration of people's roots down the mountain. Is it this part? Right. Yeah. Okay, here we go. So as you're reading the story... And I'm scrolling down, I'm reading, I'm right. reading, reading. I don't know if you can see, but the skiers are moving down, so... That passage is being illustrated on the right panel. And it's, yeah. Something I think is really exciting about it too, um, and something I know that they were talking about at the Post was, you know, a lot of people wondered, well, why have this huge blowout? Because what it was six months that people were working on this for, um, for this story. And I actually think it was a brilliant decision because it wasn't tied to a news peg really, and so. They didn't have to get it as good as it can get until that date comes and then publish it no matter what. They could wait until it was right. And I think that's really exciting. I'd like to open it up to the audience. If you have questions, there's two mics on each side. Um, Feel free to come over and ask a question. Uh, I have a couple. Uh, I'm Phil. Yeah, Phil Hiltz, the director of Night Science Journalism Program. Uh, I have questions about the editorial process. One is, how do you decide what to do? How much direction is there? And the other one is, I wonder about over time, if you would do anything systematic, like maybe take drones and then do it for two years in the sense of one here, one there, whatever seems, you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, So it's editorial. Is there a beat sometimes Mm. or is it all random? Right, right, I see. Well, the editorial process is modeled after the print op-ed page. So we take open submissions. It's very important that anybody can submit. And we also solicit work from filmmakers. If we know somebody's working on a feature about a certain subject, I might go invite that person to, to pitch an adaptation. And I go to a lot of festivals and it's important to know everything that's being made so then we can do pieces that are ahead of the curve. Um, and I work very closely with the op-ed editor and the deputy editor and the editorial page editor. And I think that that's what makes this so strong is that there's this deep knowledge within the, the paper of so many subject areas and people who know a lot more than I do about certain areas. So there's a lot of rigor that's brought to it from different disciplines, and it's not just, you know, like a bunch of filmmakers sitting around. Um, and uh, there's no beat per se. The, the, in the same way that uh, in op-ed, we don't we don't often do series, but we did during the elections do a four-part series called Electoral Dysfunction with Mo Rocca, and that was looking at 
like uh, the constitutional right to vote or voter ID laws. It, that was a focused, episodic subseries within OpDocs. And there's interest in doing that. I think we're still kind of experimenting with that. Great. Um. Yeah, oh, there's the woman behind you, too. My name is Gilbert um, Hobart. I'm a Media Lab alumna. I'm very interested in uh, interactive video. Uh, I've done some research, and I'm working on a startup uh, focused on that. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think about video being very, uh, creating a very fragmented experience where the web was historically created around pages and text and that video was introduced after that, and we got stuck with that concept, and that maybe uh, in terms of technology, we need to be interacting or experimenting with interacting directly with the video. And we see apps like Tout and uh, Vine that are still creating very, very short, even shorter videos now, six seconds and 15 seconds. So I was wondering what you thought about this experience being very fragmented and the need maybe to go back to the, the basics of what video is about and how you create meaning with video. I think it depends on the story. I mean, I, I think I also am struggling with this idea of whether a passive viewing experience where you're being led along a linear line or an active view viewing experience where you're you're leaning forward and, and really making your own experience, whether which is more successful, and I think it really depends on the actual video um, or the project. I think there are some projects that are interactive that I completely get lost in, and I can't find my way out, and it makes me feel really old, because I'm like, I'm sure the kids can figure this out, and I can't <laughs> figure it out. Um, I'm trying to think, but but I think that there's something to be said for the fact that I'm going to pull up. Um, maybe I can pull one of these up. Um, I think there's something to be said for the idea that, you know, we're working on the web, and, you know, everybody knows that everything, everything is going mobile and onto tablets, and I think that there's... I think that there's an opportunity there that we shouldn't ignore, you know? I think that people... In, in people in general, when they're engaged with things, I think often they can learn more. Um, this is a project I saw for the first time last night, and it, it was really interesting to me because, let's see how strong the internet is here. Um, it's kind of deconstructing the, the idea of a linear video. So it does have, like you said, going back to, it's just an interview, right? It's just an interview. Hopefully she'll start talking soon. And the, the interesting thing about it is, I'm not sure whether the internet's going to be strong enough. We have these limitations now. Pero al final lo hice por, so she, she's talking. Por sentirme una mujer valiente. In different parts of the interview, you can scroll up and see scenes, <laughs> or you can scroll back. So you have the control of what you're looking at, 
you know, scrolling up. Yo me puse muy or I can scroll down. And the voice continues. And the voice yeah. continues. So it's kind of a mix between a linear experience and something that you can kind of explore. And I think, I, I think people might stick with stuff more if they can be engaged with it. Mm. You probably know this yeah. stuff more than I do. But it's a f I think it's a fun kind of tool in the toolbox, you know, for the right type of story. And it's kind of an experiment. I don't know how well... I'm not convinced still that this type of work will scale on a massive level, but it's always wonderful to see. Yeah, and I think there is a lot of experimentation with <coughs> keeping a linear story while also making it interactive because that's how you hook people and keep them involved. Um, bear 71, I don't know if any of you have seen that. It's about a bear in a, the Banff um, Park, and they have an entirely... Um, an audio track that's 20 minutes, but then they have all these visualizations and, and ways of making it interactive. So um, it's, there's interesting experiments going on. No one has the answer. So another. Hi, um, I'm Kelly Kreitz. I'm a visiting scholar in comparative media studies. Um, and I have a question that I think really relates to the opdocs. Um, and this came up as I was thinking about the drones video and the creativity and I guess I would say the artfulness behind it. And it strikes me, and I'm interested to know if you think this is true, and then I'll have a follow-on question if you do, that you know, when I think about an op-ed that I read, a written op-ed in the New York Times, usually it's written by someone who's a content expert, I guess you could say in some way, a professor or someone representing an organization. And you've talked about you know, there are a variety of ways in which you recruit people to do videos, but it seems like you must mostly have people who are experts in the form and that that potentially really changes what an opinion piece might be. One change, for instance, is that it might lead to more reflection on the form itself or the construction of the opinion through the medium. Mm. Um, but I wonder if you think that's a, that's a fair difference that I'm calling out, and if, if, if so, what, mm. what sorts of changes are you seeing in, in, in the form of or the genre of the opinion piece? In the New York that's, Times. that's a very interesting question. Well, often the filmmakers are the experts in that, for example, the piano piece, the filmmaker witnessed outside his window this piano that was abandoned. So he was the person with that vantage point. He was the expert. Um, in a more traditional documentary, like with the Sundance series we just did, some of those filmmakers had worked on projects for three years, maybe even five years. So I think they definitely were subject experts. And they had access to material that no, no news crew could get just by parachuting in for a day. And I think the documentary filmmakers can bring a richness and sophistication that is highly valuable and, and can take the work beyond what a traditional uh, TV news piece could be. Right. Um, Kevin Mulcahy, just general audience member. <laughs> uh, I was at uh, Sundance. I had the benefit of being there for the full two weeks uh, in January. And there was uh, an observation and a question for you. One was the observation was uh, Robert Reich was there with a, a film, uh, Inequality for All. And he's been a op-ed guy for 25 years or so. And he's and the question was put to him is why he had now moved into the genre of video. And his point was, I had been beating my head against the wall with books and opinion pieces in text form, but the world has gone visual, and I need to go visual to still be relevant. 
And so I think that's just a, a great um, forbearer of what's to come when a, a, a credible op-ed guy like Robert Reich decides that he needs to go video. Mm-hmm. We should pay attention to that. Yeah. So that's just an observation. My, my question here is there was another product at the Sundance was called the ni- 99% the Occupy Wall Street collaborative film. So I want to pose to the panel that this idea of the film in this context here, the film maker is a redundant title. And as you get, and with this product here, who is the film maker of Snowfall? And are we now moving into a genre of um, film makers or collaborative content contributors of which now there's no one author but multi-authored product with multi-talent as you both pointed out and what are the implications now for for credit or is that not true storytelling minus the uh, editorial true one set of eyes it's multi-eyes and how you deal with that i want want to show something to that point yeah Um, i can definitely talk about yeah that that's a really good question well journalists still bring a lot of value and authorship to collaborative pieces. I think part of it is um, aggregation, curation. There's a piece I want to show that I did not work on, um, but it's from the Times. The storm on Instagram. Let's see if I can get this one up. Did anybody see this? It was it was just a terrific um, audience engagement piece where, as the storm was happening, the Times invited the public to upload Instagram photos. So these are all, you know, you could probably consider them all amateur photography, but there's just such wonderful work going on. And this was heavily edited by a New York Times photo editor. But I, I just think it's a really wonderful view onto a news story. Um, There's another piece that's done by our social media department. We have a really nice team, and the the company's been investing heavily in social media to do these types of projects. This is a piece called Watching Syria's War, which is, I think of as uh, the journalist as... um, you know, aggregator, curator, filter. This is all what I guess you could consider user-generated or citizen media. But what the editor is doing is compiling these YouTube clips and then writing about them and saying, what do we know about this clip? What do we not know about this clip? What context do you need to know as you watch this? I'll just play one. So the, the headline is Government Appears to Bomb Its Own Air Base. So appears to bomb. So, you know, it's often very hard to tell what's really going on. And it also compiles tweets related to this. And um, I don't know what happened there. But anyway, it's, 
it's very interesting. And every day there, there are videos being posted. It's a, so you can really follow the story through the eyes of people on the ground, but a journalist helps frame the meaning. Let me also just jump in there because I know that project really well, the 99%. And um, just to say that uh, it was collaborative, but and in the end they had this you know, ideal that they're going to just have it, they're going to have 30 directors and make it all work. But in the end, someone had to take control. And even though they worked with a lot of different footage, um, I know in the beginning they had email lists for every decision, um, and it was chaos. And um, eventually there was a head, you know, a, a director and a producer who were the head, and then they had all these assistant directors. So I think, I think there's definitely a role for collaborative film, and we're seeing lots of experiments with it. But, I mean, at the Doc Lab, we talk about this a lot, and I think it's also just a changing role, so it could be more of a curation role or creating an a experience for, for a um, viewer or just figuring out how to work with people, but there's you know, got to be some sort of author behind it. I mean, I know Nick Munford just wrote a book with 10 people. I don't know how that worked, but <laughs> um, that's in filmmaking, that's where we're at with it. But it's a, it's a great question, something we're thinking about. Hi. Hi. Um, so there was that great quote that you showed, Alex, about um, if you're not careful, you, you're going to recreate television. I'm not so sure in terms of journalism that that would be such a bad thing at this point. Um, you, last week, um, I have TV, you know, sort of CNN or whatever, playing as I'm doing, going about my morning. And my son, on the weekend... He's <laughs> my twelve-year-olds. That that thing that CNN did on the deep reporting on that floating cruise ship that went down the river really slowly, and my son said, "Mom, can we turn this off? They call that news." I mean, <laughs> even my twelve-year-old was like, "So, um, you know, in in light of that, in, in the moment we're at right now, and the conglomeration of things, and the sort of the, the mixing of boundaries or the dissolving of boundaries." Um, Dick Plepler was at the Kennedy School last spring, the CEO of HBO, and he was talking about how HBO is one of those television um, mediums that's looking at the future of TV and going online and sort of the whole sort of merging of those, those worlds, the world sort of converging. We've heard a lot from the top down in terms of TV sort of being the top of the heap, so to speak, but I haven't heard anything from the Washington Post, the New York Times about intentions or intentionality about that future of going from there up, meaning you guys are already creating multimedia, you're showcasing documentary filmmakers, thank you. Um, There's a lot of that going on. What do you see as being sort of the potential of going into the television realm or that space that TV has traditionally occupied? Mm. I mean... Well, it does raise the question, what does that even mean, television? Um, I think, and I took we're both, well, I took a social tel- television class um, with Marine, Marie Jose Montpetit, and I'm taking Alex it now. is doing it now. But, <laughs> but it's very interesting to be thinking what is television? What are we missing now in the online realm? One of the, I think, qualities of television that is essential is the live element. How on television, during a broadcast, everybody can see the same thing at the same time. So for a live event, or let's say a, a sporting event, 
or the Oscars. You want to all watch it at the same time. Um, and that's you know harder and harder to do online. Um, the Times is streaming um, video news reports every day. I think we're doing two a day right now. We have a set and we have reporters on that set. So that is a kind of appointment viewing situation if you want to watch it then. And I think the Post is doing that too. Yeah, we have that. So also. I think that's a big question. Like how much should we be, be investing in live? We, we had a live election show um, with the elections. We streamed um, the debates. We streamed all kinds of stuff on the Post site. Um, so we're already doing that, but we're also doing the other side. It's just, you know, we had a video run, I guess it was earlier this week, um, for or last week for Valentine's Day, about this couple and their love story, and the Today Show has asked for that, and so they're taking it. And I... Um, did a story about a, a girl who danced ballet, and that was on Good Morning America. And so it is going that direction, but it's just, it's a question of volume. You know, we, at The Post, we have a staff of four video journalists. So it's a question of volume for that. But I, I also think, yeah, I don't know what television is anymore. I'm very confused about what I do. Um, <laughs> in life. Um, <laughs> when I first got to this fellowship, I started introducing myself as a video journalist. But I, I teach um, at the Pointer Institute for Media Studies in the summers, and I have all of these television reporters who are coming in and saying, I am now having to shoot, report, and edit my own stories. Help me do that. And so they're calling themselves video journalists, but what I do is very different from that. And so I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop using that. So I started using, I make mini documentaries, but then that doesn't at any point incorporate any sort of interactivity in what we do online and then, you know, in the social television class, you know, talking about the ways in which people view television, it's not the way we used to view it, you know, it's, um, I, I don't have a TV and I haven't had cable in a long time and I don't view television that way, I view it the same way I view my own work, which is not television, but maybe it is, I'm very confused. <laughs> There was one thing I wanted to refer to also, um, thinking about social television and this term social video. We have been experimenting with Google Hangouts um, during the election season. For both campaigns, we did a series of Hangouts where we involved the public. And... Sorry, I'm just going to try to find this, but... It's interesting to think about something that TV would do where they'd, they'd have, like, remote cameras. You know, like, let's go to the field and have one of our journalists talk to someone in the field. That's, like, the classic TV news thing. But now uh, we can do that. Like, anybody can do that. So what, what's the power if you connect many people? So we had um, these events where we gathered... I think f- like five members of the public at any one time who could talk to our journalists. And that's a TV-esque situation, but I think it starts suggesting something that's different and, and new. Um, well, when I find it, I'll bring it up. And, and there are other players in this realm. You know, now this news is a startup that its primary focus Hello, is Hello, everyone. To do I'm at the Republic. Sorry. Let's see. Can you? Okay, so this Google built a studio at the conventions, 
And it looked like a TV studio, um, but it was part of a Google Hangout, which meant that using webcams, anybody in the world could be fed into this kind of TV studio. And there could be a conversation between remote people at their computers at home and our journalists. And we spent a long time finding members of the public who we'd bring into these. So it wasn't just random people. HuffPost Live is doing these now like all day. Um, but what we did is carefully came up with themes. Like this, this is a theme about people who are going to switch sides in the election, who were, um, say, Obama voters who were going to vote for Romney. And we wanted to ask them, why are you switching sides? So, so this is, I don't know, it's a, an interesting somewhat TV, somewhat web type of trend. I guess I'm next. Hi, um, I'm Lily, and I'm a general audience member. Um, and I'm somewhat concerned for the attention spans of future generations. And what I mean by that is that we have all these conventions that allow us to access data and information instantaneously. You can sit and watch a Twitter stream and, you know, news is just constantly ticking down, but then it almost kind of gives it this ephemeral quality, like it's there and then it's not. And so it's hard to convey impact. Um, and so pe people are kind of condensing news into shorter forms. And so it's like, how much can I convey in a tweet that will want to make, or that'll make someone want to click this and read further? Um, and so I'm wondering if all these shorter form formats, I guess, um, dictate the way that you produce content. Does it influence it at all? Um, are we seeing the death of long form? So I guess within all those questions is my big question. I mean, I think Snowfall is an example that we're not seeing the death of long form. I think that story is, what, 20,000 words? I might have just made that up. But it's, it's a long story. And I stuck with it to the end. I mean, I think... And three, it had something like three million views in the first week. Yeah. Oh, wow. So people, people are, are watching this stuff. I think the idea that, you know, I'm, I'm noticing myself doing it. I mean, I was watching the Downton Abbey uh, <laughs> finale, and I'm, I, you know, and I wanted to make it a social experience because I'm like, I can't believe they killed Matthew. What are people saying about this? <laughs> 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 Oh, I totally disappointed. <laughs> hey, come on! They, 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 he announced he was leaving the show months ago. Okay, I'm gonna stop talking. About it. Um, but I will. Okay. Sorry. Try to erase that from your memory. Just to censor this. Well. Um, sorry about that. But I, I wanted to see. I wanted to have a community experience, but that's a long form show, but I'm just having a second screen experience with it, you know? And so I think, I don't necessarily think that we're seeing the death. I think what's really interesting, what you said about um, digital being a little bit more ephemeral, I'm noticing that it's a lot harder for me to look back on a news event that happened a year ago and find out what happened because everything is being published. There's constantly, every day something new is being published and there's not a place where that's all being collected and curated and made easily digestible for someone. Um, and so I think there's a huge space in, in there 
to for evergreen um, sort of experiences that take news events and and make them you know and kind of become the record of history again because I think if we're just putting all this into the digital ether you know I think that it's going to be hard for people to look back on something that happened a year ago or two years ago unless people are curating that kind of content. I think that this speaks to the value of documentary filmmaking and, and long form where you know, people will spend years on a story. And um, like this Uganda piece, we did this short op-doc adaptation, but the, the filmmaker, Roger Ross Williams, was doing a film that had been reported in the Times, I think, two or three years ago. But it's so powerful to see the film. And I think this is, I think what what all documentary filmmakers believe is that we bring something really special and meaningful in the, the depth and the analysis or the emotional impact or some, something much more meaningful than news. Um, one of the things that I've learned through doing OpDocs for you know, a little over a year is that there is an audience. I think this is the good news for filmmakers. There is an audience for subtle, sophisticated, smart work. That online video does not need to be short, stupid little clips. Um, like this piano piece went totally viral and um, it's five minutes. You really have to watch it to the end. Now I know that's not long. Five minutes is not very long, but it's like a what traditionally would be considered a, fe- a festival film, a fairly experimental festival film that would just be seen by probably a few thousand people. But that made our um, top 10 most emailed article list when it mm-hmm. went up. And um, on YouTube alone, it has maybe three, 400,000 views. So I find that very inspiring. And it's a matter of finding that audience globally. And that's what we're able to do through online. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Hi, um, my name's Mohanja Kaminwa. And as a writer... I wanted to make a comment and a question. Um, on the Uganda story, I don't know that people are aware of the historical context of that story. Um, you know, about 100 years ago, <coughs> in Uganda, there was a monarchy. It was a, the, the kingdom of Baganda. And the Baganda king was called the Kabaka. And the exploitation of males by the Kabaka was part of the, the rule of the Ugandan kingdom. And so in the historical memory of the people of Uganda, there's a lot of very negative and frightening associations with homosexuality. So I think you have to look at homophobia in Uganda from that context, especially within the, the, the church. It's from the context of what happened there historically. And the other thing I wanted to say was, someone who theorized about media in like the 1930s, I don't remember his name, I want to say his first name was George, maybe sure. somebody else knows. <laughs> He talked about how in the future one day we would be aestheticizing our own suffering and we would be watching our own suffering and considering it its aesthetic beauty. And I was looking at some of those slides and thinking, you know, especially with video, this is such a, you know, it's such a risk. And, you know, how do you, what do you have to say about that? It's hmm. a challenging question. That is a challenging question. Um, yeah, I think video is a really experiential way of consuming things, and I think you have to be careful. I mean, I know in, in our, and this is the thing about working in a 
professional newsroom is that we have conversations about are we showing this? Is it gratuitous? Um, we have these conversations. Is this gratuitous violence? Is this gratuitous suffering? Or is it information that needs to be shown? And so, I mean, I think that's one of the good things about working in a newsroom that um, we take more time, I think, sometimes than uh, television to publish something and to confirm something. And it's because we're having these conversations a lot of the time about you know what to show and what not to. That's the best answer I can give for that. Um, I think that's it's a good point. One, it does make me think of one thing that I deal with that newsrooms would probably stay away from is that we do allow people to advocate positions on pieces um, because it's part of opinion. So there are people who do advocacy and who are, say, doing very emotionally manipulative work. And, um, for example, someone submitted a piece that literally had explosions and dead bodies and more explosions and more dead bodies. And it was, you know, it was really like a a very straight-up issue kind of advocacy piece. And so we have these, you know, questions. Should should we run something like that? and then there are a lot of considerations about whether or not to take it. But um, it, visu- the visual medium is so powerful. We, we have to be very careful. I did want to say thank you very much for your presentation. <laughs> thank you. Hi, I'm Linda Fuller. It actually goes quite a bit with that. I've been a professor of communications at Worcester State and very involved for many years uh, publishing and uh, active in uh, international community media. For example, I'm with one group called Our Media, and we only meet in developing countries. And thank you for Uganda, because we, uh, most of my work has been in Africa, but also um, in Asia. We, uh, my question is, these gadgets, these fun and wonderful ways to tell our stories what the heck can we do to put them in the hands of people who don't even have electricity, who we're just introducing to this notion of what we've always mm-hmm. called community media, but it's the participatory that you're talking about. So any ideas are welcome. I mean, cell phones, mobile phones are... Yeah, mobile is big. It's, it's huge, and I think as... You know, I think it's a, it's a tool. It's a storytelling tool. I mean, I don't think... You know, this, it's in the end. This is all about storytelling and not gimmick, gimmickry. You know, and so I think, I think people can, can do pretty amazing things and send them in. And I think it's an exciting time for that. And I know a lot of people at MIT are working on things to help. You know, verify uh, stories, clips that come in from abroad, and translate them and make them more accessible. And I think that's that's really exciting for people in these communities to get their stories out. Yeah, Yeah, I can just add the Center for Civic Media does a lot of this work, and in particular, um, one person that comes to mind is Sasha Costanza-Shock, and he does this uh, Vojo project, which allows you, with your cell phone and SMS, just to send stories up to this platform with very simple technology. So he's all, you know, there's a lot of work going on in terms of... um, allowing people who don't have much access to technology to be able to tell their stories, or at least here. 
This might be along those lines, but um, I was struck by these two uh, journalists um, showing very polished, very produced, I mean, uh, very artistic almost pieces. In fact, there was a distinction drawn early on between documentary film and journalism. Um, for me, the thing that strikes that, that that's most impressive about nonfiction video online is how um, big an audience YouTube creators have have um, uh, engendered, and that audience are people who are watching people try to get things right and do. I mean, it's a new type of journalism, but it's nonfiction. It's very personality driven, but it's very technologically simple. It's often just someone with a single camera that's looking right at them, they might intersperse some images. Um, but I just wanted to get your thoughts about a different type of mm-hmm. nonfiction uh, production that you see online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lo-fi, hi-fi. I think the, the kind of maxim that content rules is totally true. I mean, it, it should not matter what camera you use. And Casey Neistat is an extremely creative filmmaker and very inventive and I think just a very talented storyteller. But he uses little point-and-shoot cameras. Like, it's very lo-fi, and he has that lo-fi aesthetic, but it's a kind of lo-fi, highly crafted storytelling. Um, I think the challenge is how do you break through? Like, if your goal is to reach a wide audience, not a, that's not everyone's goal, but if your goal is to reach a wide audience, you need to break through the noise of the millions and millions of videos that are uploaded and available. So one way is through high production values. But then again, you could then be looking like television, and there was this you know, comment like, uh-oh, are we just going to become the next television? So just by making it look slick doesn't necessarily mean people will watch it. But um, it's interesting to compare like a lo-fi production of the same subject versus a high production. And viewers, I think, do assign more integrity to something generally that is more polished. So I think f- people have to be careful. And your, your work, you were a 5D innovator, and it has a lushness that is like very appealing, you know, and... I had written Alex Fan email probably 2009 when I saw this early work when very few people were shooting on SLRs and I asked the stupidest question that no filmmaker ever wants to get, which is what camera are you using? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, sometimes you see something and you're like, oh my God, how is that person doing that? Um, Thanks. <laughs> I, I also think there's something to be said for, you know, I don't necessarily think slick wins online. I think that there's a whole nother there's a whole nother thing about, you know, being first often wins online because of the way that that, you know, SEO works and and how when something gains traction, if it's the first one and it gets gains traction and it's shared, that's what's going to rise to the top in in search results and that's often not the thing that's most highly produced because those things take a lot more time. So I, I think that there's a balance there. Um, there's a lot of, you know, I was mentioning now this news, their, their, their entire goal is to be the first and to be shared quickly. And I think that they're, 
um, going to gain a lot of traction that way. So I, I don't necessarily think it's one winning over the other. I think it also depends on what kind of viewing experience people are looking at. The things I look at that are coming through my Facebook feed and Twitter feed often are not highly produced, mm -hmm. but That's they have true. a good idea or they're really funny. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm so um, curious and interested in this connection, be, like the, or the, the disconnect potentially between um, news, fast news, um, and documentary production, and what it takes to to find the truth, uh, or, or or to to uh, tell the truth of a story. Um, and I ha I come from a video news background, working for Reuters Video News, where it's fast one minute pieces, no longer than a minute, maybe a minute fifty, sorry, a minute a minute and a half, and and also as a as a documentary, independent documentary film maker, following a longer story for over three years. And, I mean, the frustration with being, ha with having to tell a story as a news reporter in a minute and a half, knowing that the story is so much more complex. And I remember one time talking to one of my, my editors, um, saying, I, I got to make this, this is a, this is a two-minute piece. Like, he was like, no, 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 a minute and a half, no, two minutes. I need to tell this one more detail because this, per this particular detail is important. We're reporting on, like, a car bomb in Afghanistan or something. And... Um, so, you know, the suspects could be, you know, these three different tribes, you know, but, um, and there's so much warring going on between these three different tribes. And so those are the three suspects. But the only space I had was suspects were, you know, and I was only able to name like, you know, anyway, not, not important the details, but I remember being really frustrated saying, well, um, you know, we're going to give the, we're not going to give the full story here and people may form an opinion about that area or what's happening. And my, the response of the editors, uh, no, 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 if people are interested, they're going to go and look and do more research on it. I'm like, actually, that's not true. The people who watch it are probably going to form an opinion immediately from this short piece. Um, and then going back to, I was doing that at, at the same time as doing this film following the, the unfolding um, uh, political developments in, in Egypt before the revolution. So I've been following the story for a long time, way before the revolution even happened. And the story is like this thing that continues to unfold, and it's so complex, and there's so many things going on. It's almost impossible to even tell a film, tell a story, in a in a long form, um, film format. Um, and so I almost want to just throw my hands up altogether and say, there's no way to tell any of these stories in any kind of depth because, you know, we are going to misrepresent it to our audience no matter what. Um, and at some place, I just had to kind of make peace in my mind and my heart and say, well, you know, this is a story told through my lens from my point of view. Um, there's no way to be completely biased and completely fool, um, but it's frustrating. I wonder if you guys have, I'm sure you've faced the same sh issues. And, yeah. and anyway, it's just comments or Well, one, question, one thing that's nice about online is there's no arbitrary time limits. And when I was working for television, I found that very frustrating and the TV news package thing where there's arbitrary lengths I found so frustrating. So, um, and people making opdocs are often surprised when I say it doesn't have to be exactly five minutes. Like, really? It can be 510? It's like, yeah, why not? You know, make it 510. Um, but you can't, yeah, I don't know. I think what, what's kind of fun in journalism is we, do, we can go after stories as they're happening, whereas documentary filmmakers, maybe you would have the authoritative film, but it comes out two years later, and then do people still care? That's, know, a, that's, that's one of a the big challenges. question. And, and also, whenever yeah. you, by the time you get to go screen it and show it, 
a bunch of other things have happened in the news already and right. people are like well what about and i'm like yeah this took a while to produce and get out there or get you know so but when yeah. I, back to downton abbey i was thinking that maybe uh-oh, coming uh-oh. Into- <laughs> i'm never mentioning downton abbey ever again no but it, it, it i was thinking about it even before you mentioned it, it was like i love watching these online series um and you kind of follow it and you keep up with it and you you know you're going to get the next bit and i've had lots of people you know, ask me when I'm going to do part two of my film and the update on what's happening and everything keeps unfolding. And, and you know, obviously it's much more complex than that, but it would be so neat to be able to do something like that where you have a continuous story that's going to come out, you know, maybe, a, you know, a super in-depth piece, you know, once a month. I remember being really jealous of, of a friend of mine who was a Guardian um, um, news reporter in, in Egypt at the same time as me. So I'm running around collecting footage and getting the in-depth story. And he's sort of the authority on the same subject that I'm reporting on for The Guardian, but he's writing. So he gets to keep writing stories and publishing them. So um, in, a, in a way, you know, he's getting to, to say much more, but also his, it, it does his audience know the whole story? I'm going to say... Probably, well, good, I'm going to try to take... editors can also envision projects like that that are episodic. And right. there was a piece the Times did um, following a girl through cancer treatment. And it was done in episodes as she was getting her treatment. The, the viewers would get updates, um, video updates and print updates. And so I think it, it's a matter of thinking creatively about how to, t- you know, how to tell a story in the best way. Yeah, and I think that's... I, like there are no... Uh, arbitrary time limits for for web stories. I think in the same way a blog is updated, I think that you could continually update a piece and it could get longer and longer. And the exciting thing about that would be if you had community involvement, people saying, you know, once they've seen just a little bit of of your piece saying, oh, my friend had this, you should interview my friend. And then your your story can evolve with community involvement. I think that that could be really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had promised Alexandra I wouldn't ask a question. Um, actually, I'm the teacher of the social TV class. Um, and I'm not going to ask a question about TV. I, I latched on something you said, and it was about the expectations of people have with the newspaper. And as you know, at the class, we look a lot at what people have expectations of what television is. And the interesting thing for me about the New York Times or the Washington Post is I never read the paper version because when I moved to the U.S., People had told me there were two newspapers in the U.S. There was the New York Times and there was the Washington Post. And both of them had early web editions. So I'm sorry for me, the Washington Post is the pictures of the day. Because this is what I was looking at every day. And the question I have for you two, because you are in new things, what do you think is going to happen when people do not know what an op-ed that was not video is? Or what will happen when people will see this? And I know a child would look at the snowfall and think this is a book on an iPad because this is how children's books are made on iPads right now. You read the story and it moves seamlessly into video. And there are characters that move around the page as you continue. So for me, this is the children's book iPad experience move to the web. So what do you think your work for, so because you guys ask in the class so much, you know, what's going to happen to television? Well, I'm going to throw it back to you. What's going to happen when people will not have that much of a, an experience with the printed words, but right. will think that Snowfall is it? Right. Well, it's like the, the newspaper is being blown up, basically. Like, uh, if you're consuming your news through Twitter and Facebook, 
you're just getting little bits of many different news sources. So the newspaper as one entity doesn't really matter anymore. But I think what matters is that we're working for news sources that will hopefully still have integrity and brand value and trust. And that's what matters, I think. So, but it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Like, will people see the whole report if they're just getting, you know, Facebook posts? They, they tend to, the, I think the research is that on Twitter, people follow people with the same political viewpoints. So there's value in a, in a But you people, know. I mean, people put, I mean, people subscribe to a certain newspaper because, you know, I think, that I, not to the same extent, but I do think that there's, there's always been that choice. It doesn't bother me. Um, I love getting the printed edition, and I think that it's a much more, you know, you happen upon a lot more stories than that you wouldn't have searched for or your friends wouldn't have shared, and it's, it's that kind of an experience. But I think that things are coming out that are going to kind of replicate that in a digital form and that kind of reading experience, and it doesn't bother me. I think this is a much richer Experience. I know that for a story like Snowfall, something that has a lot of logistics and thinking about the paths people took, visualizing it in my head, I probably would have stopped reading because once there are a lot of characters and there's a lot going on, I get lost because I'm a visual person. I, a lot of people are. And I get lost and then I would move on to the next thing. But because this one was helping me along, I actually think I learned more this way than I would have reading it in a flat form. It doesn't bother me. I'm excited. Thanks. I think we have time for one more question. So, <clears throat> my name is Rob Moss. I'm a documentary filmmaker. And the question is about the relationship of documentary and journalism, which is endlessly interesting. And you know, in the panel, the work that you guys are doing is incredibly interesting. But most of the examples are where that's been a really successful move from one to the other. And there's lots of pieces that I've seen, the pieces that you showed, demonstrate that. But I suspect that there's slippage by moments and discomfort in the relationship between the two. And I, the particular question I have about that is, how does fact-checking work with sound editing? So if you do an interview and it's three hours long and then you make a 45-second piece and sometimes you see them on the screen and so you go to something else, you've rearranged the text, you've put in pauses, you've gotten rid of the ums. Hopefully, the documentary filmmaker has kept the spirit of the thing and the meaning of the thing intact, but it's not exactly journalism, and there's no ellipses to suggest that you've done something out of order. Um, and so do fact-checkers actually look at, listen to the original thing and make sense of that? Is it okay? Because you can go, you can make all kinds of meaning from that. And I'm wondering, mm. the ways in which documentaries are expressive and storytelling and the ways that journalism is expressive and storytelling aren't always synonymous. Mm. Do, you, do you think that a newspaper article, a print newspaper article, is journalism? I'm sure I'm going to give the wrong answer. No, I, I'm just, <laughs> And I would have said mostly yes. Because I think yeah. that I do what a print reporter does. I pull quotes from an interview that I think are interesting. And a lot of times an interview is not published a transcript, you know? People, reporters are putting context around a quote. And maybe this interview subject said something up here, but it works with the lead of the story. And it's the same, it's the same, I think it's the same process as print. 
I don't think so. I mean, I think that when you do something, when you see the person and you cut the text and you make it seem continuous, because in documentary film, often you're making it seem continuous. You pull a quote and you have some exposition and you have another quote, or you have a quote and you have a dot, 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 and something else they said. Then you're announcing the ways in which these things are influenced. But in documentary film, it all is fluid. They go together, often, not always, but often they go together in a way that actually suggests that it's a continuous idea yeah. in a way that's not true in journalism. Yeah, so, I, I'm, I guess I'm drawing a distinction between sort of natural sound pieces where there's no narration. And, and in, in that sense, I do agree with you. I think it's, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm cutting an interview like that, I have to be careful. And is, is this person's, is what they're saying does it go with what they actually said? And um, I don't have people checking my original transcripts. That's up to me, and it's my responsibility to get it right. And if I don't, then I'm in big trouble, and I'm probably going to get fired. Mm-hmm. We, we did something with the Gregory brothers who did this <laughs> musical mashup video where... Um, I was very concerned about this exact problem where they were taking things that Mitt Romney had said in different interviews and they were, they were mashing it up. They were you know, splicing and combining. And we were concerned about not misrepresenting what he had said and we didn't want them fabricating quotes. I think this is one of the biggest concerns is you don't want someone's meaning, meaning to be distorted. So we, we did audit those edits, actually. We... we um, the, the fact checker went to the edit suite and looked at every edit and reported back uh, what was the original line, what are they using, and then we wound up publishing alongside the video the lyrics and links to each lyric so someone could watch the original source. That was pretty extreme, but the purpose of this piece was that Mitt Romney actually said all these lines. <laughs> like, he actually said... I like firing people, you know. And, and it's, it was very important that he really said that because there was a lot, of, a lot at stake in, in those words. Um, great. That's a good question. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation.